are working. Oh, there we go. Hi, everybody. This is nice and intimate, isn't it? Being nice and close to one another. Hello. <coughs> well, it's so good to be with you tonight. Uh, for those of you who I don't know, I am Sally. And tonight, it is my privilege and a blessing for me to be able to talk to you guys about self-worth and self-esteem and identity. So, if you haven't been with us or if you have been with us at Night Church for the last few weeks, we've been in an issues series. We've been talking about issues that commonly plague us as human beings um, uh, in this fallen, broken world, and particularly issues uh, in this culture, in our society, um, at this particular time in history, things that we commonly face. And so tonight we're talking about self-worth and uh, self-esteem, like I said, and identity. And you're probably thinking, well, having a sense of self-worth or identity or, you know, self-esteem uh, doesn't really sound like an issue in and of itself. And you would be right because, you know, self-worth or self-esteem is how we see ourselves and who we think we are and what we think we're worth. And you guys would be right. In and of itself, that's not an issue. But in this fallen, broken world, like the stuff that we've talked about in this issues series, um, things like sex and relationships and time and all those things that Warren and Jeff and Mark have been preaching on, in this world, in this fallen, broken, sinful world, those good gifts from God can be warped and are often warped and distorted in our lives. And so tonight we're going to come to the Bible and we're going to ask our Heavenly Father what He says about our self-worth and what He says about who we are and what we're worth. And then we're going to reframe where we find those things in light of His truth. It's been a real blessing for me to um, do the work of preparing this in myself because God has convicted me. And so it's just such a pleasure to be able to share with you who God says you are and what he says you're worth. So I usually, when I teach, teach kids. And we usually start off with an activity. So tonight we're going to do the same thing here with big people. So I want you to find a buddy next to you. And I want you to pretend that they don't know you. They have no idea who you are. And you have 30 seconds to, as accurately as you can, describe to them who you are. Pretend they can't see you. Maybe they're far away. Maybe they're on the phone, whatever. But you have to, as accurately as you can, describe yourself to the person sitting next to you in 30 seconds. So ready, set, go. Okay, whoever you're sitting with, swap over and give them a chance to describe themselves to you. <clears throat> 30 seconds for you to do that. Okay, that's pretty much it. That's all you get. So... If you have to describe yourself to somebody else, I wonder what it is that you use to describe yourself most accurately. How would you rate yourself, right? Did you use your physical appearance? Hi, I'm Sally. I'm five foot four. I have red hair and green eyes. Or maybe by your relationship status, I'm married to Tyler. Or by your job, I'm a registered nurse at the Wesley Hospital and part-time I work for my local church. Maybe by your education status, I'm at uni, I'm at high school or Maybe by uh, the things you like to do in your spare time or your achievements. Maybe you ran a half marathon in the recent um, past. 
Or maybe it's just by uh, the things that you like to spend your time on in your life. I like long walks on the beach and I love rainstorms. And what are the things that you use to describe who you are? It's hard to decide what is most important to include in that description, right? Because uh, we don't really know what's best to describe us. When Moses asks God in the Bible, he says, God, who will I say sent you? Who will I say you are when people ask? God literally just says, I am. Like, look around you, Moses. I just am. I am. Right? But I wonder what you and I would put at the end of that sentence. And it's an, an important decision we make because how we define ourselves creates how we value ourselves. The definition of the word self-esteem comes from a Latin origin, right? And the word esteem comes from the same root as the word estimate. So it literally means what price would you pay for you? What are you worth? What would you pay if you had to buy you? The answer to this question is important because if you don't know who you are and you don't know what you're worth, you are likely to either oversell or undersell yourself, right? I don't know if you've ever watched Antiques Roadshow. Uh, I love it. Um, but if you watch the show, you'll see people come on to the show and they, they go to these experts with this little piece of something that they found in their house. And often they'll come with something, you know, that's amazing, like it's this 300-year-old engagement ring and they bring it to the person and the person's like, oh, actually, that's a fake and it's worth nothing. And this person is totally heartbroken because they thought it was their great-great-great-great-grandmother's engagement ring. Or they come with this chunky little piece of wooden something that they found in the back of their cupboard and they bring it and the host is like, oh, that's amazing. It's from this period where something great happened and it's worth a lot more money than you would think, right? It's important to know what something is worth because if you don't, you will either undersell it or oversell it. And it's important that we listen to the right kind of wisdom on this topic because the world is really loud on this issue, in your life, you would have heard a lot of voices that dictate your identity and your self-worth. Voices that might have told you in your life that you're a nobody and you're worth nothing. And some of you might have heard those voices for a really long time in your life, particularly when you were growing up. And we know that the voices that we hear in our childhood are really, really important. In fact, we know what we learn about ourselves in our childhood affects and shapes us into our adulthood and for the rest of our lives. So if you have had a lot of voices that told you, particularly important voices in your life, that said, and maybe not with words, but with actions, that you're a nobody and you're not worth my time and you're not worth it, then you probably typically have a low self-esteem. You undersell yourself. You fall short of following the things that God calls you to because you think, ah, I'm not worth it not worth anyone's time, I'll probably fail and mess up anyway, I'm not worth it. There are other voices in the world that say, love yourself first, right? We live in a society that loves to put you as number one. Treat yourself, you deserve it. You deserve all the love in the world. You only deserve the best, don't settle any le for anything less than that. I read quotes on Instagram all the time, particularly on women's empowerment Instagrams, and my favorite one that I see all the time is this. It says, love yourself to walk away from anything that no longer serves you, grows you, or makes you happy. We are who we choose to be. Nobody is going to come and save you. You've got to save yourself. We live in a consumer-centric society that is driven by self, right? And your culture, or the world around you will tell you that you are the most important person in your world, which really is a problem because if... I'm the most important person in my world and you're the most important person in your world. 
Why on earth do we queue for hot dogs? You know, like if I want a hot dog and I'm more important than you, why would I stand behind you? I want to get what makes me happy. I'm going to cut. You know, why would we have aged care homes? People who are sick and old and offer nothing to society lie in their beds and they're not serving me or growing me or making me happy. Why would I care about them? Where does compassion belong in a society that says just serve you first and make you happy? So who are you and what are you worth? Well, we're going to come to the Bible tonight because the Bible says of itself that it is a sword that divides right from wrong and that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us insight to hear God's word and to obey it, to apply it to our lives. So we're going to come to the book of Luke in a second. Um, But before we go there, I'm going to ask that God's Holy Spirit would be the one who does the talking tonight because it's been my prayer in preparing this that you guys would hear from him and not me tonight because he's the one who can change your heart and heal it in its broken places. So we're going to ask him right now that he would speak. Father, we just sang about how good you are, and it's so true. And so we ask tonight that you would speak to us like you promise you will, and teach us more about who you are, and teach us more about who we are. And Lord, speak to us through your word that we may be able to hear it and obey it in your Holy Spirit's strength. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you that you are the kind of God that we can boldly approach because of Jesus and ask for help. We thank you for that. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in the book of Luke, and we are starting a new thing at Night Church that you heard Warren mention. The Bible you use on Monday, bring on Sunday, so that if you're the kind of person who likes to mark it up, you can grab a pen and put some notes in it so that when you're reading it during the week, you can remember what you learnt on Sunday, because I don't know about you, but sometimes I forget. So... Luke chapter 15, 11 to 24, it's a pretty famous story, and I'm going to launch right in and uh, read it. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me the share of of your estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Sorry, excuse me. This is a story in the book of Luke, and Luke was a pretty educated guy who went around collecting eyewitness testimony about the life of Jesus from people who saw and heard Jesus for themselves. 
And he records this story, and like I said, it's a pretty famous one. It's called The Story of the Prodigal Son. And I love this story because I think there's two things here that the son does that we do all the time when it comes to our self-worth and our identity. So we're going to talk about those two things that he does and that we do, and then we're going to come to what he does about his problem and see what God says about who we are and what we're worth. First of all, we see the son approach the father. And if you look at the words, he says pretty much, hey, dad, give me what I'm owed. I know what I deserve. I know what's coming my way anywhere, in any way. And his language is, give me my share. He assumes what is owed to him. And he thinks, well, I'm going to get it, so I may as well just take it now. And he doesn't even say please, if you notice. So the father, the loving father, he gives him this gift. And he divides his property between his sons. And he was always going to. His son, who he loves, has asked for it. And so he gives it. And then in verse 13, the son betrays his father. He takes this good gift that he has been given by his dad and he skips town. He goes to a distant country and he wastes it. He uses and abuses this good gift on wild living. And then when he spends it all, a famine comes and he's left with nothing. And I think that this is what happens to us when we think too highly of ourselves. When we let ourselves find our identity and our self-worth in how great we are, and what we think we're owed by God. When we listen to the selfishness of our hearts and we let our sinful heart and pride dictate our sense of worth, when we let what the world says about our own happiness being the most important thing, this is what the son did. He decided what he was owed. He took it and he took what was his to use and abuse, or so he thought, and he spent it in wild living. Who cares that the father was gracious at all, enough at all to give it to him in the first place? And who cares how we spent it because it's his, right? This is us, isn't it? We take the good gifts of the Father and we squander them so often. Christian or not, we believe that we're owed a happy life. And so we take what God gives us and we build what we want to build in our life. And in this society, right, in the richest 1% of the world, we do a pretty good job of building a life that makes us happy. The reality is we can chase down incredible jobs that we think will give us purpose, we can tick off the experience list. We can travel to faraway countries. Uh, we can build the body that we think we deserve, whether by skipping a meal or hitting the gym or dyeing our hair or putting on more makeup. We can build a house that we see on Instagram. We can have an education that's better than everyone else. We can do all of these things to build a perfect life, have the perfect relationship, make it really shiny and make it really happy because that's what we're owed, right? And if you don't like it, if you build this life and you're still not happy with it, all you've got to do is throw a filter on it, post it on whatever social media outlet that you have and let other people tell you how great it is. Build yourself up. Make your life about happiness. And yet in our society, we know that we have some of the highest rates of anxiety, of depression, and of hopelessness ever. So why is this? Because like the sun, right, we can only carry ourselves so far. Eventually, the world that you have built yourself will come crashing down no matter how pretty it is. Because this world is broken and no one escapes the pain. I had this experience a few years ago. Um, I had just married my best friend who was pretty handsome and he's pretty wonderful. And 
I had finished a degree and I had a pretty great job and I was coming to this church and I'd be given leadership of a ministry and I had great friends and we had a really pretty apartment and I was doing pretty okay for myself and I was handling life and loving it. And then all of a sudden, my grandpa, who was scheduled for some regular surgery, at the hospital where I worked, I got a call to say the surgery had gone wrong, the doctor had stabbed him in the wrong part of the heart and he was bleeding out and he might have died. And I found myself the go-between between my family and uh, the hospital and my grandfather. And there was this immense pressure to figure out, like, what were we going to do and how are we going to handle this? And I was kind of freaking out and I, I didn't know how to handle the pressure. And my parents were away on the holiday at the time, so I felt like I didn't have anybody to talk to about this. And I was trying to cope with this all on my own. And my pretty life wasn't standing to the pressure. And I remember I went for a walk one night. Instead of going to church, I walked around the streets of Corinda. And I was walking around listening to music with headphones in my ears. And I realized I was sobbing, like hard out, not coping with life, sobbing. And I was like, what is going on? Why can't I handle this? I'm strong. Look how good my life is. Anyway, I found myself on the couch of some pretty good friends, and they suggested to me, maybe I'm not the savior that I need. Maybe I couldn't carry it all on my own, no matter how good it looked. My grandpa was okay in the end, and the story is not particularly profound. I'm sure each and every one of you has a story where pain, tragedy, or trauma caught you off guard and made you question, how am I going to do this? And I bet you, you didn't upload a photo of it. Death Sickness, tragedy, trauma, conflict, famine, hurt. Our society is built on avoiding these things because you don't deserve those things. You deserve happiness, right? Health and wealth. Dodge those things and make your life about the good stuff. But the reality is that in this fallen, broken world, eventually famine will strike. Tragedy will come. And you cannot escape the pain forever. And you can't handle it on your own. The son found himself in a famine, desperate, empty, and hopeless. And he couldn't fix it with anything he had bought, built, or believed in. And that's exactly what happens to us when we think too highly of ourselves, when we put our self-worth in us, in our own happiness, and what we think we deserve. Because the reality is you and I can't determine what we're owed or what we're worth because we don't even know how broken we are. You can't save yourself from everything, and if you try, you will fail. Romans 12.3 tells us, Do not think of yourself as more highly than you ought to, but think of yourself sensibly as God has distributed faith to each one. Paul tells us we're not more important than each other. Each of us needs Jesus. Each of us needs to be saved. We all need forgiveness and rescuing from the heartbreak of this world. You cannot find your sense of self-worth or identity in yourself because in this world, you will need saving and you are not the saviour that you need. You know, sometimes I have to ask myself the question, do I live like I need a saviour? Because I don't a lot of the time. I live like I need an ambulance to call in an emergency or I live like I need a distant pen pal to write to about my sadness. Or some days I live like I need a boss to tell me what to do and I can do it. Thanks, Jesus, I got this. But Paul tells me I need a saviour just as much as everybody else in this broken world does. I need to live like my life depends on Jesus because it does. 
And the next storm that comes, sick family members, hurt, conflict, no money, famine, whatever it is, I need a saviour that has got true control over the world. I need a saviour who can actually rescue me. I can't think that highly of myself. Secondly, the son finds himself thinking way, way too lowly of himself. We see here in the middle of this famine, as people are dying all around him like they did in ancient famines, that he is so desperate and thinks so little of himself that he is willing to eat the food of the pigs. He realizes the gravity of his situation. He knows he's got himself into a mess that's so bad. He lowers himself to being that of what the animals would eat, right? And he's selling himself way short. He's forgotten who he is. He is the son of a father that loves him. And he's forgotten what he's worth. He used to sit at the master's table to eat. But he's got nothing. And so he thinks he's worth nothing. And we are like this too. We forget who we are, who we are called to be, and whether it's your own guilt that has taken you there and sin that takes us that low, and we think we deserve nothing, or if it's the voices that have told you your whole life that you're worth nothing and you're a nobody, we find ourselves seeking after that of which animals would eat. When have you sold yourself short? You'll abandon what God says about you in his word and let yourself be tempted into whatever it is in front of you, right? Maybe it's not pig slops. Maybe you've never actually wanted to eat the food of pigs. But here's the thing. The son was willing to eat whatever it was in front of him to fill his emptiness. So where do you go when you feel low? What do you fill up with when you feel lowly about yourself? What do you do to stop yourself from feeling empty? This is a really tough question, isn't it? Is it making yourself look better? And you know, some of these things that we do, they're not sinful on their own, but if this is where we go when we're desperate, they can be so damaging. Is it skipping a meal or getting your hair done? or spending a lot of money on a lot of nice things that'll make your life look prettier? Is it scrolling through Instagram or Facebook to see who else you could be today? Is it hitting the gym so you can be huge? Is it seeking out a boyfriend or a girlfriend that's going to tell you that you're lovable and you're wantable? Is it ticking the boxes of got to have the house, got to have the spouse, got to have the trips around the world? I've got to get myself together so that I feel wanted so that I feel I can fill this emptiness inside me. And again, if you can't do that on your own, just post about it on social media and let other people tell you that you've got it together, right? If you feel ugly, just find the right lighting, throw a filter over it, put it on Instagram, and so many people will like it that, like, oh, 73 people think I'm going okay. Well, I must be. I think the best story I can tell about this in my own life, and trust me, I do not escape this every day, but one of the most hard times in my life was when I was 17. I had about the average self-esteem as a 17-year-old girl. I didn't think of myself as particularly awesome. Uh, I didn't really know who I was at the time, and I was still looking around, but this guy really liked me, and he was my best friend, and he was pretty cute, and he was smart, and he was funny, and we started dating, and I found myself feeling wantable because he wanted to spend time with me. And I found myself feeling beautiful because he would tell me those things. 
And I didn't realize it at the time, but my identity and self-worth became so wrapped up in what Tyler thought of me. And eventually, uh, when we turned 18, we broke up. And the words that he said to me when we broke up were, I just can't be the man that you need me to be. And that was so true. At the time, it broke me. I thought, how can you say that? All I've ever done is love you. Why would you say that to me? But I had put so much pressure on him filling the hole that I needed Jesus to fill. But he couldn't do that. And I was really heartbroken when we broke up. I tell you, I was really heartbroken. And I thought it was because I missed my best friend. And I did. But really, the brokenness and the aching that I felt was because I had a hole that I needed to fill with Jesus. I needed Jesus to be the one that told me who I was and what I was worth. Not a boyfriend. I don't know where it is you go, but I'll tell you, if it's not Jesus, it will break you, right? Sin destroys us. Pig sloths, like for that guy, like for the son in the story, they're not good for him. Pig sloths were not going to do him any favors. And sin will destroy you, and I know... I know sometimes self-worth and a low self-esteem doesn't feel like sin, right? It doesn't feel like something that we do. It doesn't feel like something we commit. And it doesn't even feel like it's our fault sometimes. This is the thing. Every time we exchange God in his rightful place as God for something else, even if it's for ourselves, We pollute the perfect image of God and his glory. And that is sin. And it is so, so damaging to us and to his world. Because it's robbing God of his glory and abandoning his perfect love for us when we chase down pig slops instead of his love to fill us. And it has such damaging consequences because the more you seek out these things, the less they fill you, the more you want, and it becomes addiction to numb the pain of whatever hole you have, right? Pornography addictions, alcohol, self, social media addictions, all these things damage people and God's creation. Romans 1, 23 says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. We exchange the joy and the peace and the hope that our Savior offers us for pig slops. Charles Spurgeon says that we should see the evil of sin not just merely as a theory, but experimentally as a burnt child dreads fire. I know these things don't seem like bad things on their own, But when we exchange God's glory and his love for these things, sin damages. Have you ever seen a child with burns be near a fire? They freak out. The Bible says we should be running, fleeing from sin, not tolerating it or just seeing it over there and being like, ah, sometimes it's not going to matter. It doesn't have any real consequences. Like a burnt child fears fire. So what's our answer here, you know, like, How can we possibly know who we are and what we're worth? Well, if you're the kind of person who likes to mark up your Bible, this is your chance to grab your pen because we're going to circle around a verse. I want you to go to verse 17. If you're with me, put a big circle around verse 17. When he came to his senses, right? 
we're going to come to our senses about what it is that God says about who we are and what we're worth. What does the son do when he comes to his senses? He repents. In verse 21, the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. This is our answer, right? The truth is that we don't deserve to be called children of God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I love the book of Hosea. It's such an emotional book if you read it right. And Hosea is this great story of how God used a prophet to teach about his love for his people, right? In the book of Hosea, Hosea was a guy, a prophet that God said, Hosea, go and marry a prostitute. Go out and marry her and bring her back and love her. And so Hosea does. He goes and finds a prostitute and he marries her and he loves her and then she runs away and cheats on him. And God says, Hosea, go back and find her and bring her back and love her. So he does. He goes back and he finds her. He brings her back and he loves her again. And she runs away again and she cheats on him. And God uses Hosea's marriage to paint a picture of what his life is like for his people. And it's not just Hosea that teaches us this, but I love how God describes himself as a father in this book too. In uh, chapter 11, verse 1 to 4 and 8, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baal, that's the idol, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arm. But they did not realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. And it's not just Hosea. It's all of the prophets and all of the books of the Bible that teach us about a God who loves and forgives his children over and over again, even though they don't deserve it. In Genesis 1.27, God makes the first people, Adam and Eve, and he puts them in this garden, and it's perfect, and he loves them, and he says, choose me. I will provide for every need that you have. I love you. Choose me. And what do they do? They choose pig slots. They choose themselves. And they distorted God's image. Every time we forget who we truly are and what we are truly worth for what we think we're worth, either too high or too low, we throw God's love back in his face and we rob him of his glory. But this is the good news of the gospel, right? The story of the running father. Check out verse 20. But while he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. We are not worthy to be called children of God. And yet we are, sons and daughters of the Most High. If being called a son or a daughter has never meant anything for you before, let tonight be the night that you realize how much it is worth. 
We're given a name, a hope, a future, a purpose, and we are called his children. In Genesis 1.27, when theologians look at this verse, they talk about this Latin phrase, which I didn't even know how to spell when I heard it. It was called the imago Dei, which basically translates to the image of God. Literally, you were made in the image and likeness of God himself just because he chose to. When we teach this to the kids at Kids Zone, we get them to hold out their hands, so we're going to do this tonight. Hold out your hands and look at them. God made those hands. God made those hands. We get them to point to all the parts of their body, their hair, their shoulders, their noses, their ears, even the parts that they hate, their freckles, their moles, whatever it is on you that you don't like. God made you in his image just because he wanted to, just the way you are. And every time you exchange that or forget that, you exchange it for less. You know, this story is called The Prodigal Son, but it's really about the father. He's running. He's chasing. He's pursuing you. In Deuteronomy, Moses writes about God this way. He's talking to the people of Israel, and they're about to go into the, uh, the promised land. And he turns to them and he says, Don't be terrified. Don't be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way until you reached this place. When I was uh, looking for pictures to demonstrate what this looks like, I Google image searched father carrying son. And a whole lot of the same pictures kept coming up. And I don't know if you remember back a few months ago or a while ago now, there was a, uh, a, an, an event that happened in Syria. There was a whole lot of Syrian families that were being bombed and there were chemical attacks and it was really, really awful. And uh, all these people, all these civilians in Syria, jumped in these tiny little boats ready to face one of the worst seas there is, a treacherous sea, get in this boat and just go, hoping that they would hit a shore somewhere where they would be safe from chemical attacks and bombs. And these were the pictures that were coming up because on the shore in Greece where these boats would wash ashore full of people who were just hoping to survive, there were photographers and they captured some of the images of, whoa, I'm going to cry every time I look at that, fathers carrying sons to safety. This is a human father carrying his son who once was lost and now is found. And this is the way that the Bible describes God's love for you. Can you believe that this is how Jesus chooses to describe his Father's love for you? When we read in the Bible about what Jesus did on the cross, we read that it was God himself paying the ultimate price to buy you back. It says in the book of 1 Peter that you weren't paid for in silver or gold, but in blood. When we read about what Jesus did on the cross, it's referred to as the passion. And it's called that because God himself was so full of passionate love for you that he gave his life for you. God himself, holy, majestic, and perfect in heaven without you, became a baby, came into this putrid, messy world that he made and we wrecked to live and then to die, to pay the price that you and I could never pay, so that he could prove that he is the saviour once and for all that we need. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, 
that whoever would believe in him may not perish, but have eternal life, have a seat at his table, may have his best robe and a ring on their finger. Self-worth and a sense of identity should start with repentance of actually forgetting who God is. Because you cannot know who you are until you know the one who made you. And you cannot know what you are worth until you know what it is he paid to save you. Repentance is a weird old word and I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes the word repentance brings weird images to mind, you know, like an old priest whipping his back to pay for his sins, or maybe like a picket sign being held up at a rally or a protest being like, repent or die, evil sinners. But the word repentance is actually a really, really old word, and there is an element to it that refers to grief and feeling awful about yourself. But in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the word repent means to turn back to or to turn to, to realign with, right? And in the Greek, when it's used in the New Testament, the meaning there means a change of heart or a change of mind that affects your actions. I know that there should be a, a, a wealth of guilt that we feel when we realize how we've offended God and how we've messed up. But if we wait till then, sometimes we miss realignment with Jesus every day. We need to repent. I need to repent to turn back to my God and ask, who do you say I am? What do you say I'm worth? Every day, every hour, every minute if I forget, right? The other day in my reading, Charles Spurgeon said, let Jesus be the first face that you see every day. Let Jesus' face be the first face that you see every day. For me, that means going to God's word in the morning before I scroll through Instagram and start to compare myself to others. It means going to God's word and asking what he says about me before I face the day and the world that will tell me otherwise. I wonder what it means for you to look and to turn to the face of Jesus and ask what he says of you. Because when you look in the face of the Savior who died to save you and who loves you as much as a father who would carry their son to safety, all the other love that you could want seems cheap in comparison. Repentance brings perspective because it puts God back in his rightful place and it teaches us who we truly are and what he did to pay to buy us back. And so tonight as we close, I want to give you the chance to repent with me whether you feel guilty or not, because all of us need to turn to the one who made us to know who we are and to know what we're worth. If this is the first time that you've ever done that and you want to tonight, can I encourage you, when you close your eyes and pray this, picture someone a long way off running to you. Picture that father chasing you with compassion. He is so eager that you would come and sit at his table. And please, if this is the first time that you pray that prayer, do not leave before telling someone that good news. Because it is the Father's desire that we would all find a seat at his table, right? So don't leave before you talk to me or to Warren or to Ron or to someone else. Tell them you want a seat at that table 
with the creator who made you and loved you and died to save you. But if it's not the first time that you've said, I want to be under King Jesus' rule, I want him to be Lord and Savior of my life, maybe you're like me and you just need to surrender to who it is that God says you are and what you know he says you're worth. And if you're with me and you need that every day, then I would encourage you when we're praying to put your hands out. Because I do this when I need to really, really give it up and remind myself who's God. I put my hands out in surrender and I put them on my lap, I put them on the table, I take everything out of my hands and I just surrender. So I'd encourage you tonight as I pray, if you want to do that with Jesus tonight, put your hands out and surrender. Because the hands that are waiting are hands that want to throw a robe over you, that want to put a ring on your finger, who love you more than anyone ever could. So when you're praying, if that's you, you can put your hands out with me and repent. Father, we can't even properly grasp who you are and your love for us. And so we find it hard to know who we are someday. But God, we trust your word and we trust you are who you say you are through it. And so tonight we want to trust who we are to you. You call us your children, and we see the love of earthly fathers. So how much more can we trust the love of our perfect heavenly father? We know in your word it says that you died to pay for our sins because we couldn't. And there is no greater love than someone who would give their life away. And so we trust you tonight, Lord, and we surrender who we think we are and what we think we're worth, whether it's too high or too low to you. You know us inside out. You know the hairs on our head, Jesus. And so tonight we want you to be the one who reminds us what we're worth and who we are. Jesus, we love you and we thank you that we can come to you with all of this stuff. Please, Jesus, remind us every day of your greatness and who you are so that we can know who we are too and share that with others. Jesus, we're sorry when we mess up and we thank you that you are faithful. Amen. Thanks, guys. If you want to talk about anything to do with that, then yeah, like I said, you got Warren, you got Bridget, you got me. Sorry, Bridget, throwing you in there, but she's so wise. There's people here, so don't leave if you want to talk about it. <laughs>